All right. Well, we come now to the hearing of God's word from Isaiah. Uh, we've been going through the great book of uh, the prophet Isaiah. We're taking breaks here and there in the series. And I'm soon going to take a break and go to the book of Jonah. But before we do that, uh, we're in Isaiah 34 today, and we'll cover Isaiah 35 next Sunday, Lord willing. And these two uh, chapters really fit together, and they, they follow from verse, uh, chapter 33 as well, which we saw last Sunday. <clears throat> and we saw last Sunday that this section begins with the word woe or awe in uh, the uh, ESV version. And so you have these sections of Isaiah in these last several chapters that are divided up with these woe sections. And these verses, you might say, are the conclusion to the whole series of woes that Isaiah has been uh, giving us. And uh, we're reminded here that we preach the word of God in its fullness. We want to preach the, the full counsel of God. Our, our, our custom in this church is to lectio continua, continuous exposition, and that we go through books of the Bible uh, most frequently. Every now and then we'll do topics and one-off sermons, but we want to preach all the passages of God, even those that are hard or grim for us and they're not brimming with good news. And so we come to a more sober passage today, Isaiah 34. We're going to hear about the wrath of God. And uh, as we think about hearing passages like this one, I think J.C. Ryle's uh, words are helpful before I read the passage here. Uh, he said, if you would ever be a healthy and scriptural Christian, I entreat you to beware of any ministry which does not plainly teach the reality and eternity of hell. Such a ministry may be soothing and pleasant, but is far more likely to lull you to sleep than to lead you to Christ or build you up in the faith. It is impossible to leave out any portion of God's wrath without spoiling the whole. That preaching is sadly defective, which dwells exclusively on the mercies of God and the joys of heaven and never sets forth the terrors of the Lord and the miseries of hell. It may be popular, but it is not scriptural. It may amuse and gratify, but it will not save. Give me the preaching that keeps back nothing that God has revealed. You may call it stern and harsh. You may tell us that to frighten people is not the way to do them good, but you are forgetting that the grand object of the gospel is to persuade men to flee from the wrath to come. And it is vain to expect men to flee unless they are afraid. Well, it would be for many professing Christians if they were more afraid about their souls than they are now. Let's now hear from Isaiah 34. Um, give your attention to God's word in Isaiah. Isaiah 34 says, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and their stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, as leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. 
behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild ox, uh, oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its blood, its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there's no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow up over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. I'm going to read a couple more verses in the next chapter. 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Our great heavenly father, uh, you who dwell in inapproachable light, you have revealed yourself to us through your word, by your spirit, uh, through whom the prophets spoke. Oh Lord, and we have written down these words for us. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us aimless without a guide, but that you give us your word, that we might know you, that we might understand truly that we must flee from the wrath of God for our sin, and that we flee to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would richly bless us, even under these humble circumstances where many are are tuning in virtually, we pray that you would overcome even that limitation. Lord, overcome the hardness of our hearts and our sin, the sin that we bring with us this morning, and graciously bless us and minister to us in each our own way, the way that you know that we personally need it. Oh Lord, be powerful among us 
the Lord bring life to those that are sin, dead in sins and trespasses, O Lord, that they might come to know Christ and have eternal life in his name. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. Well, friends, on January 8th, 1956, uh, the 28-year-old American missionary Jim Elliott was martyred along with four missionary pastors and friends. He was killed by the very people that he went to evangelize. Uh, and his words, uh, the words that he's written, um, they're not exactly original to him, but they stick with us. We've all heard perhaps what he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And it's interesting and amazing to hear about how the children of those missionaries who died investigated uh, their father's deaths. Uh, one of the children of the missionary, uh, one of the missionaries who died there, his son later came to the area and he researched and he would explain about this. He said, as the killers described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. In other words, he's saying that God was sovereign even at that moment, and he's used the death of those missionaries, the deaths of those missionaries for his good purposes. And similarly, in a BBC interview, Jim Elliott's daughter said, God allowed this to happen to show so many what commitment to Christ looks like. And that's the question that I want to begin with today. Why would someone feel compelled to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth? Why would they be willing to go into the world and even die to testify to their faith in Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jim Elliott is just one example of many believers that have given their lives for this cause. And I want to suggest this morning that Isaiah 34 gives us at least one of the important answers to this question because it gives us a sense of the judgment of God and the, the, the wrath to come. We evangelize because we have a true sense of the judgment of God and its terror, and we don't want people to suffer it. We realize how terrible it is and that we've been saved from it, and we want others to know that salvation as well. And that judgment really comes into focus here in this chapter, Isaiah 34, and you see God's anger come out very clearly. The chapter begins with these nations being called all the peoples of the earth, coming to God's heavenly courtroom to hear his verdict against them. And you notice that Isaiah uses a number of different words to show this is universal. Uh, nations, peoples, the earth, all that fill the earth. And then verse 2 proclaims God's anger. Just by preaching this, we're being countercultural in today's society, aren't we? So many today believe that they can call themselves Christians and remove this idea of the wrath of God from the Bible. You've probably heard that even uh, some denominations today, mainstream denominations, have uh, omitted the hymn In Christ Alone from their hymnal because it talks about God's wrath being satisfied in Jesus Christ. 
but you can't stand above God's word. You can't pick and choose parts of God's word and take out this section and pretend it doesn't, it, it's not there or it's not really true. This is the word of God. We submit ourselves to it. There's Isaiah 34, and yes, there's also Isaiah 35, and there's also Ephesians. It all holds together. We can't hold ourselves above God and, and say, oh yeah, all right, my idea of God is better than the Bible's idea of God. We have to recognize that God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin and still be holy, and the holiness of God leads to his wrath, his anger against sin. And if there's no wrath of God, if there's no wrath of God, then what has Christ done for us? Christ has done little for us. There's no need for good news. There's no pressing need for evangelism without the wrath of God. And you see that wrath come out in this chapter through the word devoted to destruction. It's the Hebrew word harem. It's, it's the term for holy war. It's what you see in the book of Joshua when God brought the people into the promised land of Canaan and they eliminated the inhabitants that were there so they wouldn't contaminate what was called to be holy. This was God's dwelling place. It was meant to be a picture of heaven, the promised land. You can't have evil dwelling there in even the earthly picture of heaven, the, the type. And so that that word, harem, the ban, devoted to destruction, has to do with the holiness of God. And another thing you notice in this chapter is that Isaiah names Edom as a represent, re, representative of all the nations. Edom is a representative of all the nations. And we think back to the people of Edom, and we know they were descendants of Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau were brothers, but of course we know that their relationship was uh, not the, the most cordial and, and brotherly. There was a rivalry between Jacob, whom God says he loves, and Esau, whom he hated. Uh, and this rivalry between Jacob and Esau extended for some time through their descendants. Isaiah uses Edom here, the sense of Esau, as a symbol of opposition against God. You might remember that the book of Obadiah is completely devoted to Edom uh, and its destruction in these terms. But clearly, this is universal. What you're seeing here is a universal judgment and guilty verdict. Uh, verse 4 talks about the heavens being rolled up and rotting, the skies rolling up. This is talking about the day of judgment. This is talking about the day of the Lord. It's not pinpointing some. Uh, Point in Israel's history when Edom suffered. Uh, although any destruction of Edom that occurs in history might have been a foreshadowing of what God will do on the last day, but it wouldn't come close to the terror uh, of what's described here in Isaiah 34. Now, as you go through the text and you notice different things like the ban, the harem, as you notice Edom, one of the other things we notice is the symbol of the sword the sword of the Lord. There's hardly a better insignia for battle than that of a sword. And we, we are fascinated by beautiful swords. And one of the historical book series, historical fiction series is, that I read, it, it goes at length to talk about a warrior's custom sword and their attention and attachment to those swords. And we might think of Excalibur, or the sword and the stone as these symbols of a person's power when it comes to warfare. 
And there should be something beautiful and terrifying about the sword that Isaiah 34 mentions in these verses. Verse 6 says it's going to be bloodied. So much for those who think that God is not powerful. So much for those who think that God will not redress the wrongs in this world. It's injustices. God will right wrongs. He's got the power to do it, and he will do it in his time. Look at what he says there, verse 5, Isaiah. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. With oxen shall, wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the day, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now, Basra, that it mentions there, it was the capital of Edom. And Isaiah is saying, using a common image for battle, that there's going to be a sacrifice there. A bloody battle was described that way uh, in in those times and in other places in Scripture. Now, friends, I want you to think about what's going on here in this passage. I think we all know that there are some things in life that are worth fighting for. And so often, I I was thinking about this, so often in the course of my days, I'm trying to teach my children what's worth fighting for and what's not worth fighting for. I'm trying to teach my young children that it's not worth fighting for toys, that people are more important than things. But God makes clear that there are indeed some things worth fighting for. He says in verse 8 here, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. In other words, justice and holiness, those things are worth fighting for. God's elect, represented here by Zion, their their cause is worth fighting for. And God wields the sword to fight for them. Friends, we should ask ourselves this. You might ask yourself, what is it that you are fighting for in your daily lives, in your week? What have you fought for this week? And was it what you should have been fighting for? What was it that you fought for that you shouldn't have been fighting for? Or perhaps we might ask, what should you be fighting for that you're not fighting for? It's been said that there are times when peace is insidious. Peace is insidious when I smile and tell myself that the nagging sin within me is not really serious. Friends, there are many examples in our lives that we could use as we try to apply this to ourselves. Uh, Times that we avoid conflict when we shouldn't, when we need to confront wrong. Uh, There's a time and a place for conflict, as this passage makes so clear. And as the chapter rolls on, we see in verse 9 that it shifts from the uh, destruction God will inflict on the people to the place itself and what it's going to become. It's going to become a wasteland, a wilderness. I was listening a few years ago to a uh, audio a historical accounting and explaining of World War I called Blueprint for Armageddon. And its description of the World War I trenches and battlefield were unimaginable. Now you can go on Google and you can view pictures from that time in World War I of Belgium in those days. And 
to me, those pictures just give you a small inkling of what Isaiah is describing here. God's fire will turn the world into ashes. And Jesus is going to allude to these verses, like verse 10, when he describes hell, talking about hell as uh, unending torment. Only desert birds, like the owl and the raven, will dwell there. Instead of using a measuring tool to build, like we do, God uses a measuring tool to deconstruct, to take apart the world. He's going to make the earth like it was in the beginning, formless and void, empty. It becomes a barren wasteland, a wilderness. In verse 16 and 17, as we come to the end of the chapter, remind us this is what the Lord has appointed. Unlike so many of us, uh, we, we don't follow through. God follows through. He does what he says he's going to do. He does what he threatens. And as you read the word of God, as you see the promises and fulfillments, you should grow in your confidence. God does what he promises. Uh, verse 17 is, in fact, a small reminder that it is God who predestines. It says he has cast a lot for them. The people that are suffering in this final judgment, God has cast their lot. Proverbs tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You know, human beings, we know they're active in their rebellion against God. People are active in their sin. People are, are responsible for their own sin. God is not the author of evil. And at the same time, God is sovereign. He determines what happens, not only in this world, in time and space, but from eternity. As we think about all that's been said here in Isaiah 34, we might ask the question, do I really grasp the judgment of God? Do I really grasp the judgment of a holy and all-powerful God? E.J. Young, a commentator on Isaiah, said, he asked the question, he says, he who really takes offense at what is here related has no true conception of the heinous character of sinful rebellion against the Holy One of Israel. Another commentator points out how our society envisions all these apocalyptic scenarios, the destruction of the ozone layer, nuclear holocaust, Today, we have more ridiculous ones like robot uprisings and alien invasions and so forth. And yet, the commentator points out, however horrific any of these depictions may be, all of them actually understate the danger to the human race because every single one of them leaves out the most terrifying threat of all, the just wrath of an almighty and omniscient God. So let me ask you this morning, as you're hearing fire and brimstone, do you have a view of God that is accurate to who the Bible presents him? Or do you have a domesticated view of God? God is domesticated. Do you know that he is holy, 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 and that he cannot tolerate sin? One single hour in hell would be more overwhelming than the worst terror that you can think of on this earth. We should shudder to think of the judgment that God inflicts here in Isaiah 34. And to think of enduring an eternity of hell. How amazing it is if you really grasp the terror of that day. That not everyone has to suffer that. That not all endure what Isaiah 34 
declares. And Isaiah makes that clear as he shifts to the next chapter, chapter 35. And we see this contrast given between chapters 34 and chapters 35. We know that those who trust in Jesus, who've turned away from their sin, will experience not Isaiah 34, but Isaiah 35 and blessings that are explained there. Now we're going to go over this chapter in greater detail next Sunday, Lord willing. But if you look at the very first uh, verses of this chapter, chapter 35, you see the contrast that they make between chapter 34 and chapter 35. The wilderness, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance for the recompense of God. He will come and save you. See, Isaiah 34 describes the world being made a wilderness, and Isaiah 35 describes the wilderness being made a garden. For God's people, the day of recompense and final judgment will be a day of joy because the wilderness will have been transformed. God's people will see the glory and majesty of their God. They are called now, notice, God's people are called now, Isaiah's audience is called in their present time, to look ahead to that last day, and it affects how they live. Notice what Isaiah says there in verse 30, uh, chapter 35. He says, don't fear. Even with the Assyrians on the doorstep, if we, as we've talked about uh, what was going on in the history at that time when Isaiah is speaking, even then they're to look ahead and know God has a day where he will come for them and he will save them. And they're called not to fear. Friends, do you rejoice at the prospect? Even with danger lurking about in this world, even in the valley of the shadow of death, do you see the shadow of the Almighty? At the realization that God has already transformed your life, are you you joyful? Your life was a barren wilderness and a wasteland spiritually, and God has brought fruit and transformed you and given you the prospect of this eternal joy uh, in heaven. Now, these chapters really hold together as a great contrast, you notice that chapter 35 picks up the language of 34. We know one of the themes that's mentioned in what I've read already is that day of vengeance. Uh, Look at verse 8 of chapter 34. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And notice how that's picked up there in 35.4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So you see there are two sides of the same coin, chapter 34 and chapter 34. And again, what I want you to see here is that you see this again and again in God's word. Redemption for God's people comes at the same time as the judgment of evil. Think about this. Evil has to be ended for good to triumph. Evil has to be ended. We talked about this before, that there is evil in our world and there's injustice. And God says he's really going to end it one day. There can't be triumph unless those who would mar and ruin that triumph have been ended. And the theological term for the statements like these in Isaiah 34 
is redemptive judgment. And it's not just an Old Testament reality, but it's, it's called for and, and rejoiced in in the New Testament as well. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8 says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who know, do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Friends, we can read Isaiah 34. We can pray, thy kingdom come and look forward to that day of relief. And at the same time, our hearts can be moved with compassion for the lost, praying that those who are enemies of God will turn from their wicked way and live through Jesus Christ. Remember the parables and how the, the parables of the lost son and the parable of the lost coin, these parables of the lost show us the heart of God, that, that he is a God who rejoices when sinners repent. There's joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And he invites, God invites us to share that, to be like him in that. Jesus said the fields are white for the harvest, that we should pray for laborers to go forth with the good news. And when you think of laborers going forth with the good news, I, I was thinking of Jonah, because I've been researching to start a new series in Jonah. He's a laborer. He's sent into the harvest, into the field that was white. And that, it, it, Jonah is a missionary book, if there ever was one. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians that we've been hearing about in this section of Isaiah. But of course, Jonah wasn't thrilled about this mission that he's given. He doesn't want the Assyrians to be saved. He wants justice. He wants them to get their comeuppance. They're his enemies. Listen to the reason that he, he gives for trying to run away from God. He says in chapter 4 of Jonah, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, we'll see Jonah has some things wrong about God, but we know those things are true. God is that God. He is a gracious God and merciful. He does relent from disaster, and he's the same God of Isaiah 34. These passages in Scripture are proclaiming the same God, a God of terrible judgment, as in Isaiah 34, but also of great mercy, as in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, when Nineveh repents. In fact, when you hear about passages like Isaiah 34 and the, the judgment of God, remember Jonah 3. And remember that God's message of judgment is meant to lead people to repentance, to turn from their wickedness. That's what you hear in Jonah chapter 3. You, we should hear Isaiah 34 and know we need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That this is what we will face if we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But Jonah shows us that even in passages like this one, Isaiah 34, where judgment is pronounced, mercy can be implied. Remember what Jonah said, uh, Jonah 3 says. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So that's a message of judgment. But listen, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. 
from the greatest of them to the least of them. God proclaimed, Jonah proclaimed God's judgment and the people turned to God and away from their sin. God's grace is inferred even in the message of judgment. So when we hear Isaiah 34, know that we should repent, you should repent and look to Jesus Christ and know him, know God and his reconciliation through Jesus. And so, friends, we ourselves are like Jonah. We bear the message of God's judgment and his mercy to the lost in the world. The church is a lamppost to a world that is darkness. And that brings us back to that question that I started with. How do you encourage Christians to go into dangerous mission fields around the world, potentially sacrificing their lives like Jamilian? Well, when one uh, pastor considered this question and he saw the beheadings that were going on in China, he wrote the hymn that we know, the hymn that we were singing earlier in worship today, Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor. It's based on 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and it's meant to answer this question. Why, what would encourage believers to go out and share the good news even at risk to themselves? And what it does is it brings us back to Jesus Christ. It brings us back to who God is and his mission. We remember the dangerous mission of Jesus Christ, his greater sacrifice. To go and do missions, we might be giving up the comfort of our middle-class homes, our lifestyle, but the Son of God exchanged sapphire-paved courts for a stable floor, thrones for a manger he did surrender. The good news of Isaiah 35 is founded on what Jesus Christ would do in the fullness of time. The wilderness blossoms because the Son of God went from Isaiah 35 into Isaiah 34. He went from the heavenly Zion, where there is singing, where there's no sighing, no sickness. He went from Zion in chapter 35 in heaven to Isaiah 34, the wasteland, the wilderness. He came to earth. He suffered the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. We can enjoy Isaiah 35's blessings because Jesus Christ suffered Isaiah 34's curses in our place. That sword of Isaiah 34, it made Christ bleed instead of you or me. There's a hymn that I have had us sing once or twice. Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head it says, Jehovah bade his sword awake, O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blood, blade, must slake. Thy heart, its sheath, must be. All for my sake, my peace to make, now sleeps that sword for me. That sword that guarded the way to the tree of life after the fall, that's been taken away. Now you and I can go and eat of that tree and have eternal life and live forever. And that's why Christians are willing to give up their lives for Christ, because he gave up his life for us. He endured the wrath and curse of God for us. And whatever he endured cannot compare to anything he may call you to endure, because the curse is taken out of your suffering. The curse is taken away from your death. You may bleed like Jim Elliott did, but you will never know the agony of the wrath and curse of God. And so, as Paul says, the, the love of Christ compels us. Now, he doesn't call everyone to go out to all the regions of the earth. 
And when he does, he calls you to use wisdom and caution. But God does call all of us to bear witness to him, to bear witness to our neighbors, that it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And in hearing that, call him to faith in Christ, to know the mercy of God that's found in him. I'll close with the challenging words of one missionary. He said, when a man by constant contemplation of the passion and resurrection of our Lord finds himself so inflamed with love of God and man that he cannot bear the thought of any man living and dying without the knowledge of God, he may begin to bear the cross of Christ. If, as he bears bears it, this longing for the glory of God and for the salvation of all men becomes so great that it fills all his thoughts and desires, then he has that one thing without which no man can truly be a messenger of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess how little the salvation of others has burdened our thoughts. Lord, we have been self-centered. We've been focused on the sacrifices that you call us to make and what we have to give up instead of the, the, the wrath of God that we have been spared. Oh Lord, as we hear Isaiah 34, we pray that we would be glad to hear it, even in, in its sobering and mournful message of judgment. Oh Lord, make us glad that Jesus Christ endured it in our place that the final judgment for us was taken out upon Jesus at the cross, and that now we will be openly admit, acknowledged and acquitted on that last day. Oh, Lord God, we pray that this would lead us to serve you, to bear witness to those who are around us who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, we pray that, that we would be burdened for the lost. Lord, that we would seek for them to know the salvation that we have been blessed with. Oh, Lord God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.